We are going to be continuing in our series in Isaiah today, and uh, we're picking up uh, the book of Isaiah in that uh, passage we just read there in, um, in Isaiah 52. So if you can get your Bibles ready and go back there, that would be, um, that would be a really helpful place to be. Uh, Isaiah 52.13 is where we're going to be starting. Uh, which was on page 735 of the chair Bibles. And I don't know, what's the large print page? Does anyone know? That's all right. Let the reader understand. You'll find it. That's good. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and, uh, and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the word that has just been read to us. We pray, Father, now that by your Holy Spirit, you would be opening our hearts to your word that you'll be convicting us, that you'll be changing us, and that you'll be strengthening us, Father. We thank you that this is your work, and we ask you to do it for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right. Well, I thought I might start today with a, uh, with a question, and I uh, get you to think with me, what's the best picture you have of how to get right with God? What's the best picture you have? So if I say, how do you get right with God? What's the thing that you have uh, in mind? Of course, right now, everyone picks up their uh, New Life brochure and says, this, is that, that's what you were thinking, weren't you? No, no, I'm sure you weren't. We'll get that way, we'll get that way. Here's what I think most people would, would think. If, if we're going to get right with God, maybe we need to go to a beautiful place and meditate on who God is and sit in his presence and work out if we can approach God. And so the best place to meet God, the best place to get right with God is a beautiful place filled with silence and maybe some beautiful shafts of light coming down and some, uh, some glass cartoons that remind us about cool things that happen in the Bible. Is that right? Maybe that's the best picture of, of how to get right with God in beautiful buildings. Uh, it's really interesting that the, the Bible's picture of how we get right with God is actually very confronting and significantly different from that. Uh, I'm not sure if you think of this when you go to this place, but uh, I think this is the picture of how to get right with God. Uh, rather than thinking of a beautiful cathedral, I actually think the butchers is the best place for you to get a sense of how to get right with God. Anyone had one of those wonderful revelation moments while standing in line for sausages? I'm guessing you haven't, have you? Look, I, there is absolutely awesome stuff in this passage for us today. Okay, really brilliant stuff. But if we're thinking stained glass and cathedrals, we're going to miss it. And in fact, we're probably going to be offended by what we find here and think, oh, that's all a little bit yuck. I don't know why it's like that. So today, I want to start by saying to you, getting right with God is a big deal. And sin, rather than just being an inconvenience, you'll excuse my language, is actually a bloody mess. Sin is a bloody mess. And the Bible tells us that it's not just a matter of God just going, oh, a case of selective amnesia. I now don't remember your sins because, I don't know, can't even remember why I was upset with you before. It's not like that. And the Old Testament is setting us up so that we can understand what God will do to make us right with him. 
Okay, so let's uh, let's have a little bit of a think. Uh, if you're in uh, if you're in uh, Leviticus 16, which I won't ask you to go to, but in Leviticus 16, you see the Day of Atonement. Okay, atonement is the day of restoration, the day when we're put at one with God again, at one mint. See, atonement, at one mint. We're made right with God again. Now, in the Day of Atonement, what would happen was the priest would come to the temple. And he would have to sacrifice a bull for his sins. Now, I don't know if you've seen a bull recently. Are they small? It's a gigantic animal. And he had to kill it and butcher it and the blood. and It's, it's, it's horrible. And then he had to have two animals. Uh, one of them was a pure lamb. Uh, uh, one that's pure in every way. So I've got a beautiful little lamb up there. Uh, for sin to be paid for, this lamb needed to be slaughtered and the blood needed to be sprinkled to cleanse things sprinkling of blood to cleanse things now you might think to yourself so what does God just like killing animals what's that about well the idea is it's in the place of the people and the priest so sin deserves death the idea of the sacrificial system is not that you die for your sin but that something else dies in your place and since God says the life is in the blood that makes sense because animals with life with blood in them are alive and when the blood's out of them how alive do you think they are they're not as alive anymore so so what they thought was pretty appropriately the life is in the blood right so how do I know that my sin has been paid for that there's been an exchange well because this one dies in my place and the the sign of that is the sprinkled blood that shows the life has been paid for you. Does this make sense? Okay, so one was sacrificed. The other one, the goat, the scapegoat, what happened was the priest would put his hands on the head of the goat, confess the sins of the nation and whatever onto the, the goat, and then it was sent away. So it bore the sins of the nation away from the nation okay so it bore them away it was a guilt offering and it it bore the sins and took them away so one death and the other removal by bearing away the sins of the nation were put onto it does this make sense okay so that's that's the setup in the old testament a butcher's picture okay the, uh, the series we've been doing in Isaiah has been pointing us so that we would be looking forward to this creating an outcome called peace with God. Okay, so these joined arms here. Peace with God is the outcome of all of that sacrifice. Isaiah has been saying there is one coming. And last week you will have heard Matthew um, very carefully explain that to us. From Isaiah 11, we're told that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So you can see a stump there. It's not just one shoot on top of it, unfortunately. It's going crazy, but that was the best one I could find. Um, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So this great house of Israel, one line, one thing will happen, will come up from it. So we're expecting that. We're going, who's going to be the shoot? Who's going to be the branch? Who's going to be the root that will come from this stump that is the former kingdom of Israel? More than that, from Isaiah 49.6, we've told that God will bring salvation to the ends of the earth that a servant is coming who'll bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so hopefully that picture is self-explanatory. Salvation, earth. You got that? 
Very good. Okay, good. You're on, you're on board with me? These, these little pictures will turn up later. Okay, so we're looking forward to a servant who will come. Someone who's promised. Someone who's going to be the saviour. Someone who's descended from David. This is the shoot coming up from the stump. And someone who's going to bring peace. Well, all of that sounds brilliant, but how does it actually happen? How does it come about? In order to work that out, we're going to go to Isaiah 52. Uh, But before we do that, I just want you to see if you can complete these pairs for me. Bees and what? What's What's that guess? Oh, that's good. Bees and honey. Well done. That's great. I wasn't sure how that was going to work out, but nicely picked. Well done. Bees and honey. Uh, Horse and... Yeah, okay. Very good. Card will do. You're shorter than me. I've got carriage, but that's okay. We're We're in the right process. Okay. So bees and honey. Horse and cart. Ready for the next one? This is really catchy, this one. Really catchy. Humiliation and... It's a bit of a stumper, isn't it? What, what goes really well with humiliation? Defeat, disgrace, absolutely. Are you ready for this? This is why this passage is so great and also so confusing. Because humiliation goes really well with exaltation. And we sit here and we go, uh, sorry? That doesn't sound right. Bees and honey makes sense. Horse and carriage, no problems. Humiliation and exaltation. Firstly, you might be wondering, hey, what's exaltation? Um, humiliation is being brought low. Exaltation is being lifted up. Okay? So this passage says, tell you, two things go together so well. Humiliation and exaltation. What, what on earth is going on here? Let's, let's see if we can do it. Isaiah sits these two things right next to each other and they're at the heart of how God is going to do the work of making us right with him. So just how does that happen? Let's open our Bible. So uh, we're in Isaiah 52 and we're going to have a little look at this entree into chapter 53, uh, which is the last three verses of Isaiah 52. So if you have a look with me, Uh, at Isaiah 52 and verses 13 to 15. Uh, Verse 13 says, See my servant, this is what we've been building for. Isaiah said, A servant is coming. A servant is coming. Someone that the Lord has chosen. My servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. The first thing we want to note is that the servant will be exalted. Now, I don't know if you can see this picture up here. Uh, It's the best example of exaltation that I could find. Uh, It's a guy at a concert, and underneath him are the hands of all the people in the crowd. Have you heard of crowd surfing? Of course, the Thessalonians have. For everyone else, um, for everyone else, crowd surfing is when there's so many people in front of you that at at the rock concert you dive off, right? And everyone's standing so close to each other, they put their hands up and they lift you up. Okay, that's crowd surfing. Now, this guy has done something even cooler. He stepped out onto the hands of the people and they're literally lifting him up as he's walking around the crowd. Okay, now I reckon that's a pretty good picture of exaltation, being lifted up. Now, is this guy worthy of it? I've got no idea who he is, but I suspect not. Anyway, so first thing it says here is that the servant will be exalted. Uh, In verse 14, it says this, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being And his form marred beyond human likeness. Hang on. It says here that the person who's going to be exalted is someone who's going to be disfigured, marred. uh, A person who is almost beyond being human. Now now often, 
uh, we're going we're to have a bit of a guess as to who the servant might be here. But this person looks beautiful, doesn't he? And he's holding something that looks beautiful. It's all wonderful. Here's what, here's what this passage is saying. The person who's exalted is someone who we would be appalled at. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, and his appearance so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Rather than the person, the, the, the servant, being so beautiful, we can't help but fall in love with him physically. There's something about him that's going to be marred. He's going to be disfigured. So much so that we will be appalled at him. There's a third little hint here in this entree into uh, chapter 53. Uh, Have a look at verse 15. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Uh, I, I, I love this moment where you silence yourself, you know? Oh! And so here's this lady. I've no idea what's just happened. Obviously something of great importance on some game show somewhere. Uh, but the idea is kings, it says here, kings will shut their mouths because of him. Something will happen about this coming servant that will be so awesome that the previously awesome people of the world, the kings, will shut their own mouths in his presence. Something truly extraordinary is going to happen. So this servant will be exalted, will be appalled by them, and kings will be silenced by him. Does that whet your appetite yet? Let's go and have a look uh, in chapter 53. God is telling us what's to come. And Isaiah explains further. I want you to remember as you read this, and maybe you don't know this, but Isaiah was written about 700 BC. Was that a little while ago? Just checking in. 700 years before Jesus, which is 2,000 years before us. So, so almost, you know, getting close to if we have a bit of a rounding error, something like 3,000 years ago. I want you to listen so carefully to how beautiful this fourth telling of God is about this servant who's going to come. It'll blow you away. Absolutely blow you away. Well, let's start by having a look at Isaiah 53, uh, 1 to 3. Uh, I was trying to find someone who would, who would fit, fit this picture. And, and in the end, there's actually a, uh, a strange beauty about, uh, about this man, I think. But, uh, but often when we find people who are genuinely in distress, people on the street, uh, it can be such that maybe they smell. Ma- maybe the stuff with them is just a complete mess. And so there's a sense in which you're looking at greatly damaged humanity and and it can be just thinking what happened to this person that led them to this place there's something of that sense in here have a look with me um, at Isaiah 53 who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed he this is the servant grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. I want you to think with me about the way this person is described. Firstly, do you see in verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. 
What are we keyed up in our head to be looking for? We're wondering who's going to be the shoot from the stump. Who's going to be the branch, the root that comes from this stump? And, And here we have someone. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. The servant is indeed related to the kingdom of David. Secondly, we see in verse 3 this disfiguring that we were talking about before. Uh, Verse 2 as well. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. It's so hard for us to to think the chosen servant won't be physically attractive. You see, the way they, I don't know if you remember in the Old Testament, when they were looking for a king, when Israel was looking for a king, God chose uh, Saul. And when he stood up eventually after they found him hiding, they found a man who was a head taller than everyone else and fine and handsome in appearance. And everyone went, that's our king. That's the guy we want to follow. Fortunately, God doesn't deal with people who are a head taller than everyone else. That's good. I'm very pleased about this equation. But but he was physically attractive. He was a fine looking man. And, And yet there's something about this one which will be not necessarily attractive. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Oh, vote him in. You know, we we don't put ugly people up front very often. We don't put them on TV very often. We don't put them in ads. We don't if you're not physically attractive, it seems like our world kind of goes, well, we'll find someone else. And the ultimate embarrassment is when we've got very talented people who might not be blessed with the best looks in the world, who get overlooked by people who are completely vacuous and empty, who get lifted up as the highlight famous people in our world. Now, that's, that, that's, that's our world diagnosed, isn't it? We ignore the essence and esteem the outside. Terrible. But here it's saying... Well, we won't have that problem. The one God has chosen is appalling in some way. In fact, we were appalled and we missed him. In other words, somehow this one was walking around and people didn't just go, clearly you're the chosen servant. They didn't realize. It's almost like, imagine someone who was doing a trade in your town, who ended up being maybe a carpenter perhaps, and, uh, you know, they did some teaching and people started to follow them, but uh, they weren't especially attractive. And so what happened is, as he became more and more famous, the people in his hometown kind of went, you know what, we know this bloke, he's just a carpenter. We know his brothers and sisters, there's nothing amazing about him. Imagine a situation like that. Uh, do you remember uh, Y2K? Does anyone remember Y2K? Uh, does anyone remember what the problem was? What was going to happen? Yeah, the computers, when they ticked over to um, January the 1st, 2000, everything was going to fall over. Do you remember planes were going to fall out of the air and the sewer was going to stop working and all that sort of stuff? And uh, here's a wonderful sign saying, I am Y2K ready. Does anyone remember what happened? Correct. Absolutely nothing. Now, now, probably, because everyone worked really hard, because we were all terrified of all the disaster that was going to happen, but nothing happened. We were wrong, weren't we? We were wrong. Have a look with me at verses uh, 4 to 6 of chapter 53. Surely he took up our pain 
and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The the truly amazing thing about Jesus, the truly amazing thing about Jesus is that it was possible to be standing right there in front of him and think that something had gone terribly wrong. Something had gone wrong. It was a disaster. The plan was off track. Have a look. We, We were wrong, it says here, that people will be wrong about the suffering of the servant. They'll look at the servant and they'll say, ah, this is a disaster. Something has gone wrong. God is punishing this guy. It's clearly he's messed up. But they'll be wrong because it's part of God's plan. It's actually part of his plan. And so we see in verse 5, have a look with me at what was going on. The punishment that brought us peace, it says in verse 5, was on him. See those hands? That atonement? The punishment that brought us peace, the one that made us right, was on him, on this other one. Verse 6, uh, we see, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us have turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you remember this picture? Hands of the priest on the scapegoat, confessing the sins of the people over it, so that it might bear the sins of the people. Yeah? Here it says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This servant, this servant is suffering, but suffering in God's plan and for God's purpose, not out of a mistake. In other words, it says here that we will be wrong about what was happening to him. Do, do you remember uh, when Jesus said that he was going to go up to, uh, to Jerusalem to be crucified? Uh, what, what, did, uh, what did Peter say to him? No way, Lord, don't do it. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He didn't understand the plan of God. We were going to be wrong about his suffering. And indeed, there were those people who say, if you're the Messiah, what did they say? If you're the Messiah, come down now and prove it to us and then we'll believe you. And Jesus on the cross stayed there on the cross, saving the unbelievers, yeah? Those who were throwing mocking at him in order that he might save them. Not that he might come down and prove himself to them. So many people at that time, and Isaiah prophesies to us here, will be wrong about his suffering. I want to introduce you to, uh, to this guy here, uh, Colin Campbell Ross. Uh, first thing to say about him is he's not a very nice guy. Does he look nice? I don't know. Uh, there's no, I, I imagine there's no one here who's heard of him. I hadn't heard of him before, um, before I went looking for someone in this category. Uh, he's an Australian. Wonderful. Uh, he's a, a bartender. So far, so good. Uh, the thing that marks him out is that he was charged with murdering a 12-year-old girl back in 1922. Now, this guy, he was a nasty bit of work, okay? He'd chased his wife onto a bus with a pistol after she'd refused his uh, proposal for marriage. That's not really going to win you a lot of favours. 
Uh, he ran a bar with unscrupulous people at it. It just wasn't a nice piece of work. But what happened was the little girl was found murdered right near where his uh, pub was. And uh, looking for someone to hang the blame on, uh, they found him. They then found some hair, roughly the same colour as the girl, on a blanket in, uh, in the back of his uh, pub. And they arrested him. In jail, a guy who was in the cell with him said, oh, he confessed to me last night and said that, uh, that he'd actually murdered her. A prostitute came forward and said that she'd seen him uh, doing something. And a bunch of evidence came together that said, hair the same colour, confession, yup, you're definitely guilty. And he was hanged in 1922. Until 2008, I think, when they did a DNA examination of the hair samples and found that they didn't match each other, let alone possibly the girl. Here's a man who in Australia was executed for something that he didn't do. He was totally innocent. Now, it's worth saying he was totally innocent of the crime. He wasn't totally innocent. Have a look at the person who's the servant here. Have a look at what sort of innocence this person has. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Incidentally, we all like sheep have gone astray, yeah? Each of us has turned to his own way. Baba, do baba, you know all that. There's a going astray lamb, and then there's a lamb to the slaughter. Can you see this? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and was with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was a man who was truly innocent. That's what it says. The servant will be truly innocent, not just innocent of a crime, but absolutely innocent. A perfect, pure sacrifice. The lamb without any blemish. That's this servant. We can imagine one who was silent before his accuser, can't we? One who didn't protest when he was charged falsely. One who was declared to be innocent. Have a look what happens to this one who was so declared in uh, 53 verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What a person this, uh, this servant truly is. It says here he'll be truly exalted, truly lifted up. In verse 10, it tells us that he's the one who is the sin offering. And the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Then it says in verse 11, it says in verse 11 that 
uh, he will bear their iniquities. He's the one who will be the atoning sacrifice, the one who makes us one with God again. And then in verse 12, uh, it tells us that he will be lifted up. It says he'll be given a portion among the great and divide the spoils with the strong. Why? Because he poured his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. See, we would think if you do the wrong thing, you're punished. But here it says he did the right thing, was punished for the wrong doing of us. And because of that, he is to be lifted up. Because of that, he will be truly exalted. So I've got a picture here. Who gets exalted? Who gets lifted up? It's pretty good, isn't it? So just confirming, if you've been stringing along and just wondering, wow, this servant's amazing. Uh, Who could it possibly be? Uh, Let's see who Isaiah's servant is. In fact, why don't we ask an Ethiopian? It's a good idea, isn't it? Come with me to Acts chapter 8 again. Come with me to Acts chapter 8. Uh, it's, on, uh, it's on page uh, 1100. Acts chapter 8. And, uh, and we, see, we see Philip here. Uh, Philip's out, uh, it seems, wandering along. The Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, go run alongside the chariot. It's one of my all-time favorite Bible stories. Guy running beside chariot. Hi, I'm just listening to the voice of God today, just wondering what's, what's going on, what happens. Uh, it says here, uh, Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard, so I assume the chariot's moving, yeah? So, uh, and heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading at the moment? Actually, I'm just looking at the strange man running beside my chariot and wonder what he's doing. Do you understand what you're reading today? And, and the man says, the man says, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? Aren't you glad you came to church today? How can I unless someone explains it to me? And, and then he says, this is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. Can you imagine a more perfect and beautiful part of the Bible for him to be reading? Here, here he is. And he happens to be reading Isaiah 53. Hmm. I wonder if God was in that, hey? So here's what he says. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now that's the question in Isaiah. Is Isaiah the servant? Is Isaiah going to be the one to shut the mouths of kings? Is Isaiah going to be the one to bear the sin of the nation? The answer to that is, well, you can have a bit of a think about it if you want. It is Sunday morning. Uh, the answer is no. We'll try it again. Was Isaiah going to be the, uh, the, the, the chosen servant? Oh, good. Yeah, no, you're exactly with me. That's fantastic. No, he wasn't. Somebody else was. Somebody else was. Have a look at verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Fantastic. Why? Because here in the Old Testament, 2,700 years ago, God is laying out who the servant will be. Today, it's just a no-brainer for us, isn't it? It's impossible to read it without thinking about Jesus. The details. He was with the rich in his death. Jesus was put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He was actually put into a rich man's tomb. After his death, he will see the light of life. How many people get resurrected, do you think, these days? None. This one's going to be raised up. He will bear the sin of the nation. There aren't too many people who can die for other people's sin. 
It's just not possible. You'll die for your own. But here is one so sinless that he can take our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't this extraordinary? And so here we have so many years before Jesus, it just laid out on a platter. The servant descended from David. Do you know who Jesus' descent goes back to? It goes through King David. He was born in Bethlehem. Whose city is that? King David's city. Because he was from the line and descent of David. The shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. Jesus is absolutely the fulfillment of this. The answer is Jesus. Excellent. And so Philip began there exclaiming the good news about Jesus. And so we see the stump from the root of Jesse, the perfect lamb. We see the one who's the saviour of the world and the one who brings us peace with God. So good. So I reckon that's exciting. I'm excited about that. How should it impact us today? How should it impact us today? First question. And I, I want to believe that this is possible. Although I hope it doesn't stay possible forever. Do you despise Jesus? It's possible to mock him. It's possible to think that the Jewish teacher who died in Palestine 2,000 years ago, nailed to a Roman cross, was a loser. If you die under the Romans with 12 blokes and some women following you, how do you change the world? It's possible to despise him. I want to tell you today, if you despise Jesus, today's a great day to look afresh at who he is. Because if you don't, one day, the one who is resurrected, the one who is alive today, the one who is the king, he will come and silence the mouths of those who oppose him. Do not despise him. Do not despise him. I suspect some of you here today don't do that, which is brilliant. But I want, you to, I want to ask you, do you know his peace? The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Do you know peace? A resting center to your life. Not a desperate scrambling for identity. Not a fear in the face of death. A peace that is built in the fact that your sin is totally paid for. Do you know his peace? And if today you don't, or you're struggling with his peace, please come and talk with me. I would love to pray for you, to know and hold on to that beautiful peace. That you might be at rest, knowing your sins are paid for, your future is guaranteed. On top of that, do you exalt your saviour? And, you know, we're not a very demonstrative lot as Australians, and I really don't need our church to turn into anything that you're not actually... But if we're singing Amazing Grace and we could swap the words with Pretty Decent Okay Grace, perhaps we've lost it somewhere. Yeah? How great the Father, how deep the Father's love for us. Yeah? How deep the Father's love for us. Really? It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary love poured out at an extraordinary cost, the cost of His Son. 
And so I want to ask you today, will you lift up Jesus? Will you exalt him? Will you joyfully praise him because of who he is and what he's done? You don't have to call out because that would be un-Australian. But are you with me? You're getting it just quietly. Yes, yeah. Good, great, excellent. I want you to exalt the Saviour. Lastly, I want to give you a little challenge, which is probably, I don't think you'd normally find this from this passage, but I couldn't help seeing it uh, when I was looking through this week. In Isaiah 52, uh, it says um, that uh, his form is marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus came, died for the sins of the world, and it says here that he will sprinkle many nations, that their blood of cleansing will go to many nations. Do you know how many nations Jesus visited himself? Anyone got a guess? Two? One? It's probably one. He probably crossed over to the Jordan to the other side, and maybe you could say that he went to the ten cities on the other side, but it's very, very small. He never went to Paris, for instance, or didn't exist, of course. Uh, he never went to Rome. He never went to Athens. How is it that someone in Ethiopia is supposed to hear the good news about Jesus? How's that supposed to happen? Well, wonderfully, a guy on the road, yeah, met a guy who was running beside his chariot, got the good news. Now, if you get the good news that there's forgiveness in Jesus, what should you do with it? I think we should keep it to ourselves as a very, very good secret. Does that sound right? doesn't sound right, does it? And so what I want to say to you is if the plan of God here, which lays out this awesome servant, also says not only will he shut the mouths of kings, but he will sprinkle many nations, guess whose job that is? Good answer, Peter. Absolutely. It's our job. And so I want to ask you today, will you see Jesus exalted? Not just here. Please see him exalted here. We long to see new life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park and the growing Southwest and the world. How does that happen? It happens through us. It happens through us. Do you long for the nations? See, new life in every home starts with knowing the one who offers it. You have to know it. And if you know it, it's news that's too good to keep to yourself. So let's pray that we would be a church who not only knows it, knows the one who brings it and brings it to those who don't know it yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the incredible way you prepared for Jesus. Not an accident, not a spur-of-the-moment thing, but you laid the foundation 700 years, a thousand years before that in the sacrificial system. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the work you've done to make Jesus' sacrifice understandable for us. I pray, Father, today for those who may have come here despising Jesus, that you might soften their hearts. Father, that they might see here today someone truly awesome, that they might find their forgiveness in him. I pray for those of us who do know him and love him, that we would exalt him and praise him, that we would follow him and love him. And I pray for everyone here, Father, who does know and love him, that we would be passionately involved in seeing new life come to every home. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.